Welcome to Paralyzed Nation. This is Israel's fifth election in less than four years. But what are these elections actually about? This is Amanda Borshel Dan. Join us and our Times of Israel political analysts. Chaviv Retigur, Jeremy Sharon, Carrie Kellerland, Tal Schneider, David Horowitz. As we drill down on these hard to answer questions in this limited edition podcast series that is exclusively for our Times of Israel community. Welcome to Paralyzed Nation. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining me for an in-person recording of our Paralyzed Nation podcast. In this episode, we are going to answer questions that you, our listeners, asked us through voice memos. I am here with our settlements reporter, Jeremy Sharon. Say hello, Jeremy. Hey, Amanda. Tal Schneider, political correspondent. Hi, Amanda. Chaviv Retigur, our senior analyst. Hi, Amanda. Good to see all of you. So our first question is from Arnie Drayman. Let's take a listen. Hi, Arnie Drayman here. I would like to know your opinions as to who are the most professional, cleanest, ethical, honest, first-rate, most menschlich candidates from any of the lists. People who you can respect and trust 100% to do the right thing regardless of your or their political beliefs. Thank you. So this is really hard for us because we're used to criticizing people and not praising them as journalists. But does anyone want to take a stab at this? I can do it. Let me just start by saying that I think all of the politicians in Israel don't tell the truth. All of them. Uh, there is, isn't even, even one that I can trust or believe. But uh, since becoming a reporter for Israeli politics many years ago, I kind of draw a scale. And I, you know, I know that there is a scale. So there are some of them who are up in the scale in being dishonest and some of them are low in the scale. And this is the way I'm, you know, I'm judging them. Uh, it's based on did they lie to me personally? Uh, did something that they say to me personally came up to be proven true and so on? So, um, yeah, some of them managed to pass some sort of, um, um, you know, personal test of not being a big liars, but uh, they all make spins, they all make, um, you know, they twist the truth. And uh, I wouldn't say that you can really come up and, and tag any of them as a truthful, honest uh, human being. Wow. Okay. So she's making a list, checking it twice. Who is naughty? Who is nice? Anyone else have what to say about this particular topic? Honest or dishonest politicians? I mean, everything Tal said is right. I mean, you don't make it onto the national political scene if you're not a fairly decent liar. But at the same time, it's all, you know, people are complicated and it's, and, and that doesn't mean they don't believe. And that doesn't mean they're not, not honest, but earnest. They don't genuinely, for example, Bezalel Smotrich, say what you will about the man. He genuinely and profoundly, I don't want to measure people's honesty. When they run campaigns, no one, Lapid makes things up and Bibi makes things up and everybody makes things up. But do they believe fundamentally in what they are doing, even if sometimes they have to sell some snake oil to get there? I think that it's across the spectrum. I can, I can, you know, who's a mensch? Uh, I, I, I really, uh, most of them, frankly. Uh, Ahmed Tibi uh, has, uh, of Ta'al, of the Arab list, uh, has an enormous number of friends in surprising parts of the Knesset's uh, political spectrum. Um, and so really, I would say that 
I agree with Tal completely. Everyone's a liar. And by the way, the person you like, I don't know who that is, but whoever it is, they're lying to you. And if they weren't lying to you, they wouldn't have succeeded in making it to the Knesset. But at the same time, everywhere in the Knesset, there are really good, solid, honest, hardworking people. Um, and they're honest in the sense of politicians, right? So even as they're lying. I think, like Khabib says, politics is about um, compromise and, and any politician has to compromise on some way, on some level. And, and that's where we get that, we can get that sense of dishonesty. Um, but on the other hand, again, I don't, I don't, I think there, there is vanishingly few politicians who, who believe, who don't believe that what they are doing is actually good for the state of Israel. You might fundamentally disagree with what they think is the right direction, the right policies for Israel. But they, they believe that what they're doing is for the good of Israel and will advance the country and make the country a better place. So the, you know, the bar of saying, of finding the most honest, most dignified uh, uh, politician, that's a high bar. And, uh, and, and, and I think uh, we, shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't expect that, but we should um, hope that, and, 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 and which is the case, that they're doing what they think is right for the country. So principled liars is what we're saying, essentially. <laughs> Let's move on to our next question. Hi, I have a question about the election. What happens if Netanyahu is elected and then convicted and is in jail? Can he govern from there? Well, we know the straight answer is no, he cannot govern from the jail. Uh, but, you know, when you want to look into what is convicted under Israeli laws, then it means convicted plus finishing up with the appeal. So only after a person is convicted and finalizing his appeals, right of, um, the right of appeal to a first instance, not, not more than that. Uh, so after the appellate court will decide that the conviction stays, only then he will be out of power. And that is either through, um, you know, if he, is, if he is in power at the time, he will have to step, you know, step out or not being able to get elected because he will be either, you know, serving his uh, jail time or serving any other of, uh, of punishment. Let me just also say that we are now more than a year of hearing the evidence and the trial witnesses uh, only from on behalf of the prosecution. We didn't reach the part where, where you know, we hear any other witnesses yet. And we are far from finalizing the prosecution case. So you still have probably at least a year to two to go on those witnesses. And if you will put on top of that the defense witnesses and then uh, rebuttal and then summons of, you know, of the cases for each side and then the court ruling and then verdict, this is probably three to four years from now until it's done and then appeal. So. so Netanyahu has time for a whole new political career before that's a question. At least six or seven years ahead, yep. Mm -hmm. And he's just, you know, he's going to turn uh, 73 this week, right? So we're looking towards the 80s, you know, plus minus. So no rush there. May we all live so long, right? Okay, so let's move on to our next question. Hi, I have a question about the elections. What is the most realistic possibility for Lapid to be re-elected. Lapid does not right now, according to polls, and polls have been wrong in the past, but according to all the polls, and um, Lapid does not have a coalition. What he may have, there's, a, there's a, a, a somewhat of a decent chance that he'll have, although it really depends on turnout, 
um, is the ability to block Netanyahu from having a coalition. And then the question becomes, does Lapid use the ability to block Netanyahu? Will he have 61 or even just a simple majority in the plenum to go to new elections, to sixth elections? Or will the threat of a sixth election, especially, for example, in the ultra-Orthodox community, where the longer we go without a government that they're sitting in, the longer they're actually in the opposition and unable to pull coalition budgets for their community, which is billions of shackles that their institutions, their school systems need, um, how long will they jump ship, leave Netanyahu, uh, in order to avoid that sixth election, another six months or maybe a year uh, in the opposition, etc. So Lapid's best hope is to first, there are two stages to an Israeli election. First, you block the other side from having a coalition, and then you piece together your own. Lapid doesn't have a coalition, but he, a 61, a majority coalition. He might have the numbers to stop Netanyahu. Stopping Netanyahu might be enough if he can peel off some of Netanyahu's uh, parties. And if not, where to sixth election? In, in the meantime, Lapid would still be in power, correct? And Lapid would be in power until the Knesset swears in another government. So what's the time frame on that? Say that we do end up at a tie again, how much longer would Lapid be in power? You mean if we go to a sixth election? Correct. So November 1st is election day. The president receives the numbers. The president asks someone to try. That someone has, I think, seven weeks, something like that. So altogether, it can go up until February 23, if no one succeeds. That includes a second person? Right. Mm -hmm. okay. And then, I mean, altogether, I mean, that's the stretch. That's the longest stretch it can go on. And then if uh, by February something, they don't uh, form a, a government, then the 25th Knesset will dissolve. And then we're going to have election in May of 23. So he's going to be an interim, but he, but let's just stress that he, this is a, a prime minister without real authorities. This is what we call an interim prime minister. He cannot make appointments. He cannot, you know, they, they are, will be unable to pass the budget again. He is unable to, I mean, right now we see this agreement with Lebanon. You know, it's still up to the high court. He will be also probably limited on foreign affairs if this high court will succeed. And even if it doesn't succeed, it will be limited in many ways. So this is a caretaker government. Okay, so essentially nothing can get done, and he would be the prime minister in name alone, essentially. Right, a caretaker and parody government. It's still a half-and-half half government where the Bennett side, even if Bennett will no longer be you know, in the Knesset or Shaked, they, they might still have cabinet posts. We're right, we're, these are new institutions, the parody government, so we're, we're in a little bit of a gray area, but yeah, very, very weak. Okay, well, let's see what happens, <laughs> obviously. Let's hear the next question. Hi, Times of Israel. Why were the right-wing parties able to cooperate ahead of the election, but the left opposition less so? And you could say the right is united by the idea of a greater Israel, but shouldn't the left have been united by their own shared values? As a follow-up question, putting aside political ideology, is it good or bad for the country's democracy that parties cooperate as they have in the Netanyahu bloc? It's not so new that the right wing has been able to unite itself, um, especially the current parties of the right wing, because they've done so in the previous elections as well. Um, and, and, and the reason they are able to cooperate is that they are quite, quite similar in many respects. Um, the cooperation we're talking about is uh, Otzma Yudit, the far-right party uh, of Itamar Ben-Gvir, and Batsal Smotrich's religious Zionism party, which is also, to many intensive purposes, a far-right ultranationalist party. So their ability to 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 come together uh, is quite natural, um, and uh, and and makes sense to maximise the number of votes they can get. 
I guess the question is also, what do you call right? Because Likud is right, and you could say Giron Sar would be right, and yet they're not cooperating at all. Response? I think there are a few things. On the right, there are overlaps of sort of culture and ethnicity that are missing on the left. And so you, for it, even these words right and left, as you say, are, are cross huge, you know, gaps and differences. But for example, in the history of the Shas party founded in the 1980s, um, when it has grown, it has often grown at the expense of Likud, because Likud's base and Shas's base are Mizrahi Sephardi Jews. And and so, um, you know, when, when Shas in the 90s rose to 17 seats, Likud shed those seats uh, to give Shas its seven or eight or ten extra seats, right? So Mizrahi Jews feel very comfortable in those two places. They're essentially the same electorate that makes them competitors, but their voters want them to run together and they know it. And so they, they in fact, Shas's... Um, Campaign posters now, but not also, also I think in 2015, uh, have Netanyahu on them next to Arya Dari, the leader of Shas. You know, one of the people who articulated that was Rav Shach, the most important Haredi rabbi of his day. In 1990, he gave this famous uh, rabbit's speech where he said, I'm going to paraphrase, but look it up. It's actually a fascinating sort of political text that has helped define modern Israel, where he said, you know, there's a part of Israeli society, Israeli Jewish society, uh, who he called rabbit eaters, right, who eat non-kosher food. And then there's a part that is much more traditional, the Mizrahi, the religious Zionist, it's much more. We ultra-Orthodox can do business with anyone we need to do business with. We'll sit in left-wing coalitions, we always have, but we'd, but, but we're much more comfortable on the more conservative side of the spectrum, just at a at a most at the most basic cultural level, and that speech by the most important Haredi rabbi of the time in 1990 really has given a tone that's very similar. So they have shared electorates, kind of shared social, you know, uh, cultural assumptions. Benjamin Netanyahu famously, when he travels abroad, eats non-kosher, loves non-kosher. He is as non-kosher as Yair Lapid. But one just sort of decides to assume he's kind of a kosher eater in spirit, right? So um, that, that that those kinds of soft cultural questions make it a much easier uh, thing to do. I think some of this um, unification on one side is anecdotal because we have so many election cycles in the last uh, three and a half years and we've seen a huge unification on the left wing coming up to what we call blue and white union, Kacholavan. And they came up with 36 mandates, uh, just standing in front of Netanyahu with 36 mandates, I think maybe on the second election. So for three election cycles, the entire center left, uh, not the entire, but, you know, huge big part of it, of the center-left, ran together, only to be dismantled with COVID entering into our life and Netanyahu uh, going in front of the TV and saying, Benny Gantz, we need to rescue this country and you need to come and join me and don't, you know, don't play politics at this harsh time when we have, we're facing the worst um, pandemic of the century and you need just to stop the politics. And he actually begged, begged him, up until that time, for free election cycles, the entire you know big chunk of the left uh, center was united, and you did you you do see right now in this fifth election cycle that the right wing was better in uniting, and the left side is actually running apart. If you look at labor and merits, but by the way, if labor and merits would unite, they would come up together with probably seven seats, whereas when they're running apart. They each will come up between two, four to five seats, so they can gain up to even 10 seats running apart. Well, if they were united, they would lose a lot of power. Uh, Lapid actually you know, pushed them to unite, but they refused it. So 
as long as they pass the threshold, it's not a bad thing to run apart. But I think that was your key point there, as long as they pass the threshold, which is somewhat in doubt. But they will pass because they will do a Gewalt campaign, what we, you know, what we call a Gewalt campaign, saying, you know, save us, save us, save us from the doomsday. And some people probably on the on the sidelines of the center will just, you know, run up and save them. And also, I think when you have this multi-party campaign system, I think many people are not voting on their merits. They actually vote on strategic, what we call a strategic vote. So you, if you ask people around, what are you voting? If you're a lefty or if you're a liberal, what are you choosing? They will tell you, I'm looking at the latest polls. Whoever gets to be in the worst position, I'll vote for him in order to save the day. They don't really care anymore. I mean, what, what, what is the real difference between merits and labor now or between, even, even with Yeshati? Anyone knows? I mean, not me. You're going to get a lot of hate mail from merits and labor people for saying that. What is the difference between Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid? Anyone knows? Mm, not really. So you actually do a strategic vote as opposed to the right wing at the moment where you're doing not a strategic vote, but, you know, on the merits vote. But having said that, the right wing was not unified through all the five election cycles. Sometimes they were you know, less organized than the right wing, or specifically a thing on the first one. And one of the right wing parties is somewhat being steamrolled out. That is, of course, Jewish Home, which is not being organized and, and there's no cooperation and it appears right now. What do you say about that, Jeremy? Bite Yehudi Jewish Home and Ayelet Shaqeda, she's in a kind of impossible situation. She joined very reluctantly a coalition which she uh, very didn't really didn't believe in very much and went uh, went against a lot of her uh, you know principles and, and and ideas. And she's been left carrying the the, the ball, and and now she's she's rejected by by the Netanyahu bloc, and and she's rejected by and she has her she herself has rejected the the coalition she's come from, and so she's she's. She's in a, put herself, been put and put herself in an impossible situation and uh, her chances don't look very good at all. Um, whether or not that's good for uh, the Netanyahu bloc or, or the, the, the anti-Netanyahu bloc remains to be seen because in some polls uh, it's shown that she's taking more seats away from uh, the, you know, Gantz's party, which is, includes uh, some, some hard right uh, elements as well, uh, who, who would have been, who, who, who voted last time for, uh, for, for Yamina Bennett's party, which has turned into Shaked's party now become by Yehudi again. Uh, so, so, you know, that, that might not, that might actually be detrimental for uh, the, the, the anti-Netanyahu bloc, but regardless, her, chan her chances look especially slim. It's worth just adding Netanyahu wants her out. Also, Netanyahu has spent vast capital, resources, time, effort, cabinet posts, promised other parties that are not Likud positions on the Likud Knesset slate just to bring everyone and unite them and bring them around the table. And whenever he thought one of his parties in his coalition were about to maybe start, you know, looking sideways at Lapid or Gantz, he would he would launch public campaigns trying to shame them, especially Moshe Gafni of United or Judaism suffered more than one of these campaigns, uh, to, to say he's about to break the right wing and destroy our coalition and give the left and, you know, the, the Muslim Brotherhood, by which he means the Arab Party Ram, uh, you know, control of the country and all that. He would launch these incredible, as Tal said, Gewalt campaigns. And so it's also a function of just very hard work and political strategy uh, that the right has united in that way. The left would manage to hold it together, as Tal said, for three elections, and, uh, and this time isn't, hasn't. 
We have another couple of minutes, and so I just want to ask you my own personal question. We're talking about several parties that may not make it beyond the threshold, and many of them, or three of them at least, are led by women. And I wonder if perhaps that may have something to do with their struggle right now to actually make it across the threshold. Tal, do you have any idea? So you're talking about uh, Ayelet Shaked, uh, a Jewish home, and then you're talking about Adar Mukhtar, young people? No, I'm not even talking about her. I was talking about Meret, Zahava Galon, and of course, Labor, Merab Mikhaili. I have to tell you that according to all polls, uh, labor and uh, merits are supposed to cross the threshold. They don't have the same problem as Ayelet Shaked has. Um, but it's interesting that, uh, you know, usually in Israel, uh, parties that were headed by women were on the left wing. This is uh, aligned by the, the same trend in Europe and, 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 and in the United States where the first parties to put women on top uh, were from coming from the liberal left. You know, if you look at Hillary Clinton or... Geraldine Ferraro back in the day. Right, and, and the Tories on, uh, in Britain and with the fifth election and also if you look up to Italy or maybe France, the trend has changed. So Ayelja Kent coming from the right wing, she can be compared to the new prime minister of Italy coming from the very far right wing or this Italian uh, Marie Le Fen uh, who became a very uh, uh, strong uh, politician. I think that uh, Ayelja Kent is not running on a specifically feminist campaign except one thing she does say, I have crisscross how do you say that like men uh, a woman a man a woman a man like her list right now is compiled of 50 percent women and she at the beginning of the campaign she said this is amazing you have never seen anything like that on israel's right wing specifically if you look at the Likud, where their list is deprived of women uh if you look up to the 20 uh seats they have only three women or maybe four but that's it one woman at the first tenth and ayala chaket said you know listen we have um, 50% women here on the top of the ticket. But now in the last couple of weeks since she's running for her life, she stopped even mentioning this uh, feminist agenda. So she's not using any kind of uh, gender talk in order to bring people along. She all, all, all she talks about is how she is the one that is going to save Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu by giving him the enough seats to cross the 61 if he will help her a bit, which he doesn't want to do. So, I, I think the circumstances, uh, yes, all those parties are led by women, but I think Labour struggled to, to, you know, to cross the threshold under um, Amir Peretz and, and previous male leaders. Um, Nitzan Horowitz didn't do much better for, for Meretz. Um, so I, I think it's kind of particular to the, the, the position of those parties um, rather than related to the gender of their leader. We like gender blind. That's great. Okay. Thank you, all of you, for joining me today. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to Paralyzed Nation. We'll keep bringing you our Times of Israel community members' exclusive episodes, including our post-elections analysis. Special thanks to producer Gilad Brownstein and to Times of Israel community gurus Mick Weinstein and Rena Levin. Don't forget to drop us a line with a voice memo question and we'll include it in future episodes. Please send to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until next time, Shalom. Thank you.